to lead us in this journey of looking behind the news and how we have evolved to the mess we are in today is John Perkins. John is the author of a couple books, The Secret History of the American Empire, Economic Hitmen, Regime Changes, and American Corporate Domination, and uh, as well as an, another book that uh, the secret, well, he was also the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which was a bestseller. And I read both books, and I was particularly interested in looking at how we got to where we are today. Because if you speak with anyone in positions of power, Democrats or Republican presidential candidates, with possibly the exception of Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich, they will let you believe that somehow the world does not appreciate all that we give to them, does not appreciate our form of democracy, and they hate us because we are a free nation. And yet when I travel the world, that's not why people have concerns about America. So we want to ask John to take us on a journey through his experiences because he was there, he was a part of the problem. Now he's trying to be a part of the solution. Nice to have you with us today, John. Thanks, Gary. That was very eloquent and beautifully put. Thank you for inviting me to be with you. I want to begin by taking a look at the uh, page 59, your 10th chapter called Attacked and Beaten in Indonesia. And I'm just going to quote it. It's a short chapter. Then we'll take off from there. During my talks, audience members sometimes refer to news reports that Nike and other companies are improving. I, like most people I meet, want to believe this. We hope that Nike founder Phil Knight and other executives in leadership positions act responsibly. I contacted Leslie and Jim, the couple who had tried to live like Nike factory workers in Indonesia and were now producing a documentary movie about sweatshops. Their email reply was not reassuring. Quote, Since our trip in 2000, we have returned twice and have kept in contact with workers and labor organizers. Marginal changes at best have been made. But the real issues of wages and the rights to form independent unions are no better for workers now than they were in 2000, despite Nike's attempts to make the public think otherwise. The government minimum wage has risen in Indonesia, but the prices of food, water, cooking oil, clothing, and housing and other basic necessities have risen at the same rate. Workers are still forced to make decisions like eat or let my child eat. The last time we were in Indonesia... A Nike factory worker whom we had interviewed since 2000 and who has worked in a Nike factory for eight years came to greet us. She gave us a solemn hug and strained half-smile and said forcefully, nothing's changed. What has changed is the price of oil and therefore the cost of transportation to and from the factories. It now costs workers up to 30% of their already inadequate salary just to get to and from work. Where does the money come from for this Increased transportation costs, the women and men working six to seven hour, seven days a week for multi-billion dollar corporations are sometimes forced to eat rice with salt for their two meals a day. In the late 1990s, Nike re- responded to criticisms about sweatshop conditions saying that critics didn't know what they were talking about and that the subcontractual factories were owned by someone else. Therefore, Nike did not have the power to make changes. In 2000, Nike's response was, right issue, wrong company. By 2002, Nike executives were following us around the U.S. at the colleges and high schools where we gave lectures on the subject. They would send a packet prior to our visit denouncing that we were going to say, 
what we were going to say, then follow up with an editorial in the student newspaper saying we didn't have all the facts. And now Nike's strategy seems to involve attending social responsibility conferences and admitting that there are some problems, but that the answers lie in all stakeholders and working together on Nike's terms. Meanwhile, the same problems uncovered in the 1990s, from starvation wages to bathroom breaks, limited to twice a day, to verbal, physical, and sexual abuse, the threats and physical violence toward union organizers continue to occur in Nike's factories around the globe. If Nike were to double all of their workers' wages in Indonesia, roughly one-sixth of their workforce, it would cost them approximately 7% of their $1.63 billion advertising budget. If Nike redirected a portion of their advertising budget to paying their factory more money per good, we could see most of these sweatshop labor conditions vanish. Now, that is just one section that I read here. And then I want, to, I want you to take your time now, Jim, and we're going to tie these things together. Look at what's happening now in all over the world. What role did American corporations play in causing it, including supporting the government that we are now condemning? Where were, where were the voices of Jimmy Carter? Where was the voice of Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger? and Bill Clinton and others condemning and bringing economic sanctions. Where was Wall Street conscious about bringing economic sanctions against Sohardo and Sicardo and all the other people involved and then take it from there around the world, country by country, to show us the true impact of America's financial contributions to these countries, the International Bank and, and the World, world Bank, International Monetary Fund Structural Adjustment, working hand-in-hand with special interest groups, their buddies, and what it meant to the average person. The forum is yours. Take your time. We have no breaks, no limitation. Well, it's a big order, Gary, but, you know, it's um, since World War II, which is when this really got going, and it's just been going on an increasing basis, um, we have really been out there in all of these countries. Indonesia is just one of many, many examples uh, creating what what I call uh, the the American Empire, and it's the, it's the world's first truly global empire, and it's also the first empire that has not been created by the military for the most part. It's been created by economics, and it's been created by just the kind of thing that you described with Nike. Um, but much deeper than that, uh, people like me, economic hitmen, uh, for these years have identified third world countries with resources that our corporations covet. In the case of Indonesia, that would be oil and also cheap labor. The cheap labor, of course, is what relates to Nike. And then we arrange huge loans to this country from the World Bank or its sister organizations through the IMF, et cetera. But the money doesn't actually go to the country. Instead, it goes to our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in the country, power plants, uh, industrial parks, things that serve a few of the rich people in that country but not the majority of the population who are poor, who are not connected to the electrical grid, or if they are, they've only got one or two light bulbs. They, they really don't use much electricity. They don't have the skills to get jobs in industrial parks, only in these sweatshop places like what, what Nike's infamous for. And, but they, the, the people of the country, the whole country is left holding a huge debt. It's so huge that they can't repay it. So at some point we go back and we say, look, you know, you can't pay your debts and give us a pound of flesh, sell your oil real cheap to our oil companies, or keep your labor 
uh, under control, keep people working in, under slave labor conditions, or vote with us on the next critical UN vote, or allow us to have stationed troops in your country, or support us in some place around the world like Iraq. And in that way, we've really created this very subtle empire. And when, when we fail, when the economic hitmen fail to corrupt government officials, which is basically what we're talking about here, when we fail to bring these people around, when we fail to get them to accept these huge loans that are going to place them in servitude, then the jackals step in, and these are men who overthrow governments or assassinate the leader. So when I failed in Panama, for example, with Omar Torrijos, uh, he was assassinated by the jackals. All of these leaders always know that if they don't allow themselves to be corrupt, corrupted, if they don't give in to the economic hitmen, the jackals are right there around the corner. So uh, Sukarno and Suharto both knew that in Indonesia, as do uh, all these world leaders understand that if, if, they, if they don't allow themselves to be corrupted, they're basically faced with a choice, be corrupted, make a lot of money for you and your families, put your country in terrible jeopardy, enslave your country, or get thrown out of office or assassinated. It's a, it's a heck of a predicament. And what it's done, Gary, is it's, it's put all of us in an extremely dangerous world. So it, it, it may seem as though we're all beneficiaries of this. We, we live very prosperous lives in the United States for the most part as a result of this system. But the fact is that we have created a, a world that's becoming increasingly dangerous. We've got the global warming we all know about now, incredible amounts of terrorism, anger around the world. We're creating a very, very destabilized world. And I think what we all need to understand is, is I, just four weeks ago, I, my daughter gave birth to my first grandchild. And, and I, what I understand is that my grandson cannot possibly expect uh, to live in a sustainable, stable, and peaceful world unless every child on this planet has that same expectation. Because today, unlike 30 years ago, we live on a very, very small, highly interdependent and integrated planet. And we can't have homeland security here in the United States until we understand that the, that the entire world is our homeland. And when people are starving and when they're desperate and when we're enslaving them around the world, making them work under terrible conditions, um, it's, 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 it's a terrible reflection on all of us and it's creating a world that just is not viable. We're going to have to make it better. And, and a lot of the secret history of the American empire is about my ideas as to what we must do to make this better. And I know we can make it better and, I, and, and we must make it better. Okay, good opening. Now we're going to go through about 15 small sections, and if you would please give us your overview on these, all right? Okay, um, all right. I believe that most of the major foundations, the, like the Clinton Foundation, the Gates Foundation, do not end up helping the poor in the world, but because of the power that these people have, almost always what we are told, noble gestures, quality effort ends up still going to the most powerful and just take a look at all the money that was raised for the tsunami victims and who actually benefited profited from the tsunami um, tidal wave in indonesia well it's a yeah that's a very good example of what, what, what always happens in these circumstances at the very beginning the initial reaction is altruistic so we send in tents and we send in food and we send in bottled water and we try to and medical supplies, and for a few weeks we, we really do something altruistic, but that's a very small part of the process. When the big bucks re become available, and we all hear how this country's dedicated so many billions, and in, in this country so many billions, and so on, at that point, something else begins to happen. Infrastructure development in these places 
uh, occurs in a way that will help the, the, the big corporations, the wealthy, uh, not the poor people. So rather than having this money go in to rebuild the small fishing fleets that were destroyed by the tsunami and owned by, by private individuals, small, you know, small-time fishermen, and to help them rebuild their storage facilities or maybe even create better storage facilities, refrigeration plants, etc., the money goes toward big fishing establishments rather than helping mom-and-pop uh, hotels, bed, bed and breakfast that were there before rebuild that were destroyed by the tsunami, rather than helping them rebuild, the money goes to help the big hotel chains around the world, especially U.S. hotel chains. Same with restaurants. Same with so many things. And in fact, in the case of the tsunami, it was also used as a way to get rid of some very legitimate opposition to a dictatorial uh, Indonesian regime Aceh province, which was badly hit by the tsunami, was a place where the local people were, were, were organizing themselves, including sometimes militarily, in order to defend themselves against the exploitation that came out of the Jakarta government. Uh, the resistance movement there was totally destroyed as a result of the tsunami. The tsunami was seen as an excuse to send the army in uh, and, and totally uh, wipe this out. And unfortunately, this is not uncommon. And I think another sad part about this, Gary, is that the American people believe that we're altruistic. They believe that we're doing good things around the world. And they ask a question you pointed out earlier in this report. Why do they hate us so much? Oh, they must hate us because we love freedom. Why would anybody hate anybody because they love freedom? That's, that's the most absurd thing I ever heard of. And that's not has nothing to do with it. They hate us because we're exploiting them terribly, but most Americans don't even realize that these sorts of things are happening, which I think is a direct threat to us as a democracy. Good. Thank you. Now, we, we started our investigation two years ago, and two years ago on this program, about two weeks before NPR did their program on this, we reported that approximately 50% minimum of all money that went to any contractors in Iraq was bribe money or was graft or was being taken off as exorbitant profits, but you did not see the new infrastructure on the ground. Now, at that point, it was about $160 billion. Today, it is over $400 billion. And the newest information is that, yes, corruption is rife everywhere. Recently, just one person who had been <clears throat> a whistleblower for overseeing uh, to make sure corruption didn't occur, uh, kill himself. He drank some um, um, uh, some kind of fluid and uh, an antifreeze or something and, and died because he had been uncovered, because he had been caught up in the bribes. When you look at cultures like in the Middle East that thrive on corruption and bribes, why should we be surprised when we learn that at least 50%, if not more, of the money actually spent there is spent on bribes, where here you can buy, for example, a sandwich or the material that goes on a sandwich for about 90 cents. There it's 10 times more. What's the difference between that sandwich going to feed an American soldier here and an, an army base or there? It's corruption. And why did it take so long for any one administration to finally say, gee whiz, the American taxpayer are being asked to support something that is utterly vile and corrupt at every level? Well, because every administration is tied in with us, unfortunately, and it does happen under Democrats and Republicans alike. The, who's really running the system are what I call the corporatocracy, which are uh, relatively few men in 
even fewer women who run our biggest corporations. This isn't a conspiracy. They don't have to get together to conspire. They all know what they're doing, what they have to do to make the system work. And they really are, are in control. They, they, for the most part, control the media, either through direct ownership or, or advertising. They control our politicians. Every politician is very beholden to huge campaign uh, war chests, and most of that comes from the corporatocracy, not directly from corporations so much as from their, their biggest owners and their management who make these donations. And so they're in this position, and, 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 and whether you're Republican or Democrat, you're very much at the mercy of these corporatocracies, which is why I, I, I keep emphasizing that that's where we have to create the change, within the corporatocracy, within the corporations. But this whole corruption thing is rampant. And, you know, it's, I often hear the argument, well, what's wrong in Africa, what's wrong in the Middle East, what's wrong in South America, is those people are very corrupt. The government officials are corrupt. But corruption doesn't occur. Somebody has to do the corrupting. And I think human beings are, in general, easily corrupted. We, we, we all fall prey to that at some level in our society. We, even the corruption of advertising, we buy oh, things we don't need. John, let, let me interject something here, and I'd like for you to respond, please. In, in Chapter 9, Fruits of Co- Corruption, you talk about how much money it took, a $159 million bribe to the Sohardo family in order to do a particular deal, a billion-dollar deal there by a company, and how that all fell apart, and in time it, it was uncovered. Now, I just finished filming a major new documentary. It's called Death by Medicine. And I flew out to California because I wanted to interview some of the world's leading philosophers and ethicists. And first I started off by asking him, what do you think of the integrity of Wall Street, the medical community? And they thought rather highly. Then I pulled out a brochure, as you'll see in the film, and it listed just for the last four years on Wall Street about $9 billion in fines have been paid collectively by almost every single major firm on Wall Street for breaking the law. And settling lawsuits are being found guilty of all kinds of schemes. Corruption. Mm -hmm. I then took the medical community to task, and I took a look at how many people within the medical community, such as pharmaceutical companies and hospital associations and insurance companies, have been found guilty of corruption. Mm -hmm. And it was even higher than Wall Street. One company alone, Hoffman LaRoche, paid $700 million for price fixing. And almost every single company, because I had every company listed, their name and the actual lawsuits they settled, what they were found guilty of. And it was into the billions of dollars. So I said to these people, Wall Street provides the legitimacy and the economic incentive for the rest of America to support a particular stock or company. You always hear miracle new AIDS drug or miracle new heart disease drug or miracle new diabetes or some drug promoted. And now the stock shoots up, people buy in, and two years later you find out it didn't work and people got damaged or dead. Or you get Vioxx where 100,000 Americans die and the stock goes up and no one goes to jail and no person is found guilty of anything. And so I'm asking myself, just in medicine alone, Wall Street is corrupt as a general statement, and we have the documents to back it up. And medicine is corrupt and deadly. We have the documents to back it up, and we have all the proof, 
hard prima facie proof. So why do we still insist that countries like Africa or Indonesia are corrupt and to do business there, you, you are going to be in a corrupting environment when we are equally as corrupt to any place else on earth except we refuse in, in, in our major media left and right and our politicians left and right to acknowledge how corrupt we are. Your thoughts? Well, it's, yeah, it's an excellent point. But, and, 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 and the other side of that, Gary, is that to say that the leaders in Africa are corrupt is to ignore the real problem, and that is that we are the ones doing the corrupting of those people. We are the ones with the money. So the problem is not corrupt officials in Africa or Latin America or the Middle East. The problem is that we go in intentionally to corrupt them. That was my job as an economic hitman, was to corrupt these people. And a lot of the, you mentioned all these fines. That's for doing things illegal. An awful lot of the corruption is legal. And, you know, and give you an example, if you're the president of a country and I want to corrupt you, Gary, I want you to take on this huge loan, and you knowing full well that your country's going to be ruined as a result of it, but I want to bribe you, and I want to do it legally. I go to your brother, who owns a big construction company or the John Deere franchise, and I say, look, when we build this project, I'm going to give, give you, your brother, I'm going to give your brother a, a I'm going to get a million-dollar contract to rent equipment from him worth a million dollars, but I'm going to pay two million, and you're going to get, you, the president, is going to get most of that other million. And there's nothing illegal about that. If I get caught having paid two million for a service that's worth a million, I'll just say, oh my God, I didn't know it was really worth only a million. That's a bad business practice. I made a terrible mistake. I may fire some underling, but I haven't really done anything illegal. And, and that sort of thing goes on all the time. The overpayments, which are a form of corruption. And my company, Charles T. Maine, and then you mentioned the, the, the $159 million bribe that was Stone and Webster Engineering Company of Boston, a very reputable old engineering firm, but they did these kinds of things all the time. And all of those companies, uh, we, 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 we pride ourselves on the fact that we brought the sons and sometimes the daughters of high government officials from all these countries to Boston or wherever our headquarters were, pay their way, get them into uh, local universities, Boston University or, or Harvard or, or wherever they could get in, but we would pay for everything. We'd give them full scholarships. We'd pay all their transportation, their, their housing and food costs, and then we'd give them an internship at our company and pay them well for that. Hundreds of thousands of dollars that, that would basically free to their families, and, they, and yet there's nothing illegal. We'd brag about that even and say, well, we're creating a situation with exchange students. But the fact of the matter is, was that their fathers were being bribed tremendously. This was a huge free lunch that they were getting. Isn't, isn't it also true that today we would not have the same crisis that we're facing with Iran had we not supported the corrupt and absolutely murderous secret uh, police uh, state of the Shah of Iran? Of course. You know, the, the Iran had, a, had, a, had democratic elections, had a very, very popular democratically elected prime minister, Mossadegh, back in the early 50s. He was held up, Time magazine had him as a man of the year in 1951, held up as the hope for democracy in the Middle East and around the world. But he went after the oil companies. He said, look, these companies are taking Iran's oil. The Iranian people ought to get a much higher percentage of the profits. They're not getting much. They're not getting the profits, and they weren't. So he began to say, we've got to tax these companies higher, and if they won't pay their taxes, we'll nationalize them. 
So we decided this democratically elected president had to go. We sent in a CIA agent, Kermit Roosevelt, Teddy's grandson. And with a few million dollars, this guy managed to over, you know, create this tremendous chaos in the country, paid people, organizers, to, to cause chaos, to cause rioting in the streets, and, and in the process managed to overthrow Mossadegh and replace him with the Shah. And the Shah, as we all know, was a despotic, dictatorial brute who very, very strongly favored the oil companies. He was, he was virtually the same in his capacity for destruction, pain and torture and killing as Saddam Hussein. He might make the argument that he was worse in some respects, but he supported us in a big, big way. And, you know, I've often wondered what would have happened in the Middle East if we had instead supported Mossadegh and said, you're right, your oil, these oil companies, could let them stay, but let them pick, give much bigger share of the profits to the Iranian people to pull, pull you guys out of poverty, out of the Middle Ages. And, you know, what kind of message would that have sent to the rest of the Middle East? I suspect that if we had done that, the Middle East would be a very, very different place, be very much more peaceful, that the, that the, that the Shiites and the Sunnis and the Israelis would all be getting along much better together. Who knows? We can't tell. But what happened was we destroyed an incredible opportunity, and we brought down a democratically elected regime and replaced it with a dictatorship, a brutal dictatorship. Look at what we do today. On the one hand, we say we are against evil and tyranny. On the other hand, we buy things from China and accept uh, their cash, so that, and they accept our IOUs. Why can't we be honest and simply say, let us boycott any country that... Uh, has a history and current history of human rights abuses and enslavement of the no freedoms. Otherwise, isn't it rather like talking out both sides of our mouths? We say, gee, let's go to Dubai, the Las Vegas in the land of the mullahs and Qatar, and they are completely racist, totally sexist. They're out of, they're out of something that's primordial in how they treat men and women. And yet, that's the hot place to be. Hal Burton's already going over there to make it their headquarters and to do business, take China's money so we can continue our massive overspending. At some point, shouldn't the American public have to wake up and say, be responsible, you don't need to buy everything that you see, and stop using your credit cards, and let's get conscious, and let's stop supporting countries or anything from a country that has made it slave labor? Yes, we must, you know. I mean, and, 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 and we have to get there, Gary, or, or, or we're, we're going to really go down in a, in a big, bad, terrible way. Uh, I, I'm very concerned about this, but I'm also, I, I feel that the American people are coming around, and that when we understand, we will do something. It's why I write the books, and as I travel around the country, which I've done for almost the last three years, I'm, I'm on the road right now, uh, I, I, I've seen a huge change in three years. People are becoming more enlightened. Programs like yours books like mine and so many other books, movies like Syriana and The Constant Gardener and Blood Diamond and Al Gore's movie and so many others are, are beginning to wake us up. And, you know, we claim to be a democracy, but a democracy is built on, an, on the premise of an informed electorate. If our electorate doesn't really know what we're doing around the world, it doesn't want to know, wants to close its eyes, then you've got to question what kind of a democracy we are. We need to turn this around. And I think every problem you've described is the result of a philosophy that says our corporations ought to be maximizing profits, making huge profits, not just four or five or six percent above inflation like the old blue chip stocks used to do, but 20 to 70 percent return. 
and it's greed. What we must do is understand that if we want to create a sustainable, stable, and peaceful world for ourselves and our children and grandchildren, then that must be the goal of our society and even of our corporations. Their goal should not be to net maximize profits. It should be to pay a decent return on capital that's needed to, uh, to, to move things forward in the world, but just a decent return, not an indecent one. I agree with that, but I don't think that's going to happen. My optimistic side says that let us not wait for those people to find their conscious. And also, I believe the average American understands the answer before the government officials or the media have even framed a question when it comes to ethics. And I want to quote from Matt Pruitt, and it says, Veneration of Wealth. It's only a page. It says... A lot of articles in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or Financial Times are about what rich people spend their money on. These articles couch themselves in other topics like real estate, art, travel, philanthropy, or culture. They discuss how the new Gilded Age is impacting this or that aspect of society. They answer crucial questions like, how are people with enormous amounts of money bolstering the market with private jets? How are the ultra-rich using the downturn in logging to snap up humongous tracts of idyllic forest in Montana? Or what sort of hardships do buyers endure when searching for a $20 million Park Avenue apartment? The Financial Times is mostly uh, has a monthly answer called How to Spend It. The New York Times could probably fill a daily section with the same title just by cross-applying articles from their other sections. Admittedly, articles are written by for readers. So what does this say about these publications' readerships? Some readers are super rich, but most are just slightly rich. The bulk of this material, then, is glassy-eyed voyeurism disguised as cultural commentary. It is MTV Cribs for college-educated people who find Shaw's furniture tasteless. It is a classier manifestation of the same fawning, syncophatic culture that gives us gossip magazines, America has never been particularly anti-wealth. This is a great feature of our culture, and it has spared us from some of the tension that still plagues European societies. But I wonder whether we are taking a prudent attitude towards the contemporary Gilded Age. In the last Gilded Age, the super-rich were often reviled as corrupt and decadent. There was a lively debate about whether they ought to be called captains of industry or robber barons. Today, things are different. Our hedge fund managers never get called rubber barons because, by and large, they aren't. Our CEOs sometimes get criticized for big pay packages, but as long as they aren't defrauding investors, nobody really resents them. And then they're praised for their patronage of the arts and their philanthropic largest. There, are, there has never been a better time to be extremely rich. But when respect for the rich turns into veneration, I start smelling cultural rot. Why? Because when the rich are widely venerated, it is harder to be satisfied without a lot of money. This makes millions of people less happy and encourages them to adopt bourgeois striver lifestyles. Historically, people have nurtured dislike for the very wealthy in order to maintain their own pride. It has been popular to accuse the rich of, among other things, corruption, decadence, selfishness, oppressiveness, lack of sophistication, and whatever else was appropriate. The rich, however, don't like these epithets, though using them makes everyone else feel better. And in recent years, they have gotten better at vaunting their public image. 
Two particular behaviors which have lately surged in popularity among the very rich are obnoxious to everyone who enjoys trashing the upper classes because these activities are infuriatingly respectable. The first is art collecting. This ruins the old opposition between money and aesthetics. There is so much money in the art market these days that art seems inconceivable without industry's approval. How did rich people pull that one off? The other is philanthropy. Everybody likes philanthropic individuals because philanthropy is great. But the current philanthropy boom is a little disturbing because it feels like the wealthy have purchased exclusive rights to help people on a large scale. How does this make the rest of us feel? Not only are we poor, we are morally inferior and capable of epic rectitude. This is a cruel dagger in the heart to the anti-rich line of thought. Warren Buffett and people like him have silenced everyone who thought they could do more good if they didn't focus on accruing a personal fortune. The bourgeois mindset looks more defensible by the day. In reality, hysteria about a new gilded age has created a temporary lack of perspective. If you have enough money to cure preventable diseases with your personal fortune, you have obliged. You are obliged to do so. Nobody should need to say thank you. Furthermore, artists deserve infinitely more credit than their patrons. Jason Pollock is a genius. Peggy Guggenheim deserves a polite nod. Rich people may not be the villains we sometimes wish they were, but they don't deserve moral adulation for everything they can afford to do. Now, one last thought on that. <clears throat> when you look at the fact that we have 10 million millionaires, we have nearly a, a thousand billionaires, of whom over 110 are Chinese. And when you see what we do with our money, and then the idea that our intent is to give a certain percentage generally what the tax man allows, and then make, make sure that everyone knows what we've given money for, then the intent of that gift is what we focus on, not whether it actually helped anyone. I've only had two people ever hang up on me on this show. One was Werner Earhart. When I asked him once when he was on about his hunger project, I said, how much money has been raised? He said, $60 million. I said, how many people have you fed? He said, none. He said, it's not about feeding people. It's about raising consciousness. I said, so you're taking $60 million with the idea that you're going to raise consciousness, but if you already have your conscious raised, then it's better to actually help people understand how they can be fed because they'd rather have the food in their belly or the capacity to grow their own food than to know that someone out there is weeping for them at night and he hung up. Uh, my thoughts are simple. I believe that we are an extraordinarily selfish society today, including the wealthy, but not limited. I believe the poor are selfish, morally. I believe the middle class are extraordinarily selfish and self-absorbed. The time we could be spending on making it a better world, instead, we're more interested in going to the malls and buying the latest PlayStation or watching television or losing ourselves in what we consider the insurmountable objects we face each day. The middle, upper middle class, I believe, are very selfish because they have an elitist attitude. They believe that they're above the fray, but below heaven. So they're somewhere in a cultural purgatory. Heaven help them if they can't get the McMansion they so desire, even if it means going into debt. So the next deal becomes more important than what they can do to make it a better world by actually engaging. And the very rich you rarely see engage because they have foundations that do it for them. But ask yourself this, 
go to the foundation, see how much they've given, and then go to the people and see how much better are you for it. And you're going to see a paucity of, of, of help. You're going to see that our intent does not match effort, and yet all the while we become fascinated with how much more can we build. Because no matter what you are doing when you are insecure, it will never be enough to focus upon the real issues. And yet we have all the resources to change everything, but we do not have either the spiritual or mental connection to make that happen. And hence, when we look at the suffering around the world, we see people who we feel how unfortunate for them and never once say, and what role did the corporation that gave you a big dividend play in exploiting the natural resources to give to the rich and powerful in that country, undermine their, the freedom and the quality of life by structural adjustments through a corrupt World Bank or even more corrupt International Monetary Fund? And why didn't you pay attention that there is a moral hand handing you the money? Is it a dirty hand or a clean hand? And we will refuse uh, with our conscious in a state of amnesia to remember that there is something that goes beyond whether it's legal, it's is it ethical, is it moral. Your final thoughts, John Perkins. Well, <laughs> you really summed it up there. Um, we, you know, if you look at philanthropy, you look at somebody like Bill Gates, who I don't know what he's worth these days, $16 billion or something or other, and gives $10 billion, let's say, to charity, but he made that $60 billion to a large degree by exploiting people around the world. And, and that goes on and on. Tiger Wood, how much does he get paid uh, to advertise Nike, which, which is keeping its workers in, in, in slavitude? Uh, it, it, what we all must do, I think, Gary, is we, we need to redefine who we are as human beings and where we go from here. The indigenous cultures around the world have predicted that we're entering a time when consciousness has, can change. We need to change it. And guys like you speaking out over the radio and like me writing books are trying to head this up and tell people, listen, this is not about accumulating more money or more material goods. That doesn't make us happy. Look at our statistics around uh, drug abuse and, and homicide and incarceration in this country. The wealthiest country in the history of the world has the worst social statistics. Wealth hasn't made us happy. And the rich people aren't happy either. Uh, what's going to make us happy is creating a sustainable, stable, and peaceful world. And that's where we need to focus. And I feel that actually we can get the corporations to do this in the same way that we got them to clean up rivers that were terribly polluted in the 70s, burning in states like Ohio, the way we got them to get rid of aerosol cans that were destroying the ozone layer. More recently, we got Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's to get rid of trans fats and, and Tyson Chicken Company to take uh, antibiotics out of their chickens. We've been very successful on specific issues. Now we need to, and, and because we, the consumer, have a great deal of power, and yet the advertisers are constantly trying to seduce us and convince us otherwise, but we don't need to listen. We need to understand that what we want for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren is a sustainable, stable, and peaceful world. And put pressure on all these, or, or, on all these institutions, whether they're governmental or whether they're, they're corporate, to set that as their primary objective. And you know, in every one of these org organizations, whether they're governmental or, or, or corporate, are just people. And most of the, uh, these people, and I've known a lot of very high-up executives, including CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, that are real worried about the world. They, you know, But we keep putting them on the covers of Fortune magazine if they make more and more money. We do that. 
we need to turn that around and let's put on the cover of Fortune magazine and Time and every place else the people who are making this a better world. The, 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 the Randy Hayes of the world who create places like Rainforest Action Network, the Gary Holt Knowles of the world. Let, you know, let's, let's honor those people who are spreading the word, who are trying to create a better world. And if we start to do that, rather than honoring the, the guys making the most money, whether they're corporate executives or athletes, if we start to really honor people that are making this a better world for ourselves and our kids, then we'll set a real example for future generations to emulate. And I'm, you know, convinced that we can, we must do that. If we don't do it, we're going to get into an increasingly degraded, dangerous, and unstable world. So we must well, turn it around. Well, we are in that unstable world. It's, it's here now. Our health care system is collapsed. Our uh, Wall Street has shown itself. Uh, it has refused transparency. And now, uh, much like an ulcer that has been hidden um, uh, into an abscess, the smell came, but we didn't know where it was. It touched and it pulled away. Now we're looking and we're thinking, my God, how we live with all this corruption, this greed for so long. But we, we know who, we know what we are. We're very clear on that. We are our possessions. We are our titles. We are the latest fashion statement. We are who's got access to an individual. Why do you think the politicians accept money? It, it's a quid pro quo. They give you money, you give them access. We also know who lives in the right homes in the wrong neighborhoods. Nobody is invited to give counsel if they live in the wrong neighborhoods. Nobody is invited to be on the magazine of Time magazine if their person's still struggling to understand what it is to be a human being. But people are absolutely certain that they are unique because what they own and what they've created are always deferred to. We are very primal and we're very similar, but that's what we don't want to acknowledge, how close we are to just being like everybody else, and that is the fear of insecure people. I don't want to recognize myself beside other people. I want to recognize myself as better, and that's the attitude they take. And until there's some humility, austerity of spirit, and willingness to work cooperatively and collectively with others to make it a better world, then these are not going to manifest as quickly as we wish. But I'm glad that you're out there doing what you're doing and others. There's a lot. We just have to join energies and select our projects and, and bring it to fruition. Thank you for the secret history of the American empire, economic hitman, jackals, and the truth about global corruption, John Perkins. All the best to you. Thanks. Thank you very much, Gary. Keep up your wonderful work. 